to remain, if you'd remain standing for just a moment, out of respect for God's word, while I read the sermon text this morning. This is the inspired, infallible, and the inerrant word of Almighty God. Then Joshua rose early in the morning, and they set out from Shittim, and they came to the Jordan, he and all the people of Israel, and lodged there before they passed over. And at the end of three days, the officers went through the camp and commanded the people, As soon as you see the ark of the covenant of the Lord your God being carried by the Levitical priest, then you set out from your place and follow it. Yet there shall be a distance between you and it of about 2,000 cubits in length. Do not come near it, in order that you may know the way you shall go, for you have not passed this way before. Then Joshua said to the people, Consecrate yourselves, for tomorrow the Lord will do wonders among you. And Joshua said to the priest, Take up the Ark of the Covenant and pass on before the people. So they took up the Ark of the Covenant and went before the people. The Lord said to Joshua, Today I will begin to exalt you in the sight of all Israel, that they may know that, I was, that as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. And as for you, command the priests who bear the Ark of the Covenant. When you come to the brink of the waters of the Jordan, you shall stand still in the Jordan. And Joshua said to the people of Israel, Come here and listen to the words of the Lord your God. And Joshua said, Here is how you shall know that the living God is among you, and that he will without fail drive out from before you the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Hivites, the Pezzarites, the Girgashites, the Amorites, and the Jebusites. Behold, the ark of the covenant of the Lord of all the earth is passing over before you into the Jordan. Now, therefore, take twelve men from the tribes of Israel, one from each one from each tribe. And when the soles of the feet of the priests bearing the ark of the Lord, the Lord of all the earth, shall rest in the waters of the Jordan, the waters of the Jordan shall be cut off from flowing, and the waters coming down from above shall stand in one heap. So when the people set out from their tents to pass over the Jordan with the priests bearing the ark of the covenant before the people, and as soon as those bearing the ark had come as far as the Jordan, and the feet of the priests bearing the ark were dipped in the brink of the water. Now the Jordan overflows all its banks throughout the time of harvest. The waters coming down from above stood and rose in a heap very far away at Adam, the city that is beside Zarethan, and those flowing down toward the Sea of the Arabah, the Salt Sea, were completely cut off. And the people passed over opposite Jericho. Now the priest, bearing the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord, stood firmly on dry ground in the midst of the Jordan, and all Israel was passing over on dry ground until all the nation finished passing over the Jordan. Please be seated. Would you pray with me once more? Father, as we open your word this morning, I ask that you would be with us, that you would be with me, that my words do not get in the way of the meaning of your text and of this passage, that you would implant it in our minds and hearts, that we would know you better, obey you more completely, and love you more thoroughly. To your glory, in Christ's name, amen. Well, it's been a little over 40 years since the Israelites crossed the Red Sea. In that time, they have experienced much. 
They have witnessed miracles, received God's law, they've built the tabernacle, they've fought many battles, maybe most importantly, they have experienced the presence of the Lord among them, and have finally come to the edge of the promised land, the land that Leroy read about in in the unison scripture reading that had been promised to Abraham a little over 400 years previously. God has been faithful to that promise. And they are getting ready to cross over. Joshua chapters 3 and 4 record for us that, that crossing, if you will, and we will look at Joshua 3 this morning. This chapter could be broken into the following three sections, and this is how we will look at them. Uh, Verses 1 through 6, the preparation for crossing. 7 through 13 have some theological lessons for us relative to the crossing. 14 through 17 are the climax of the chapter, that is the actual crossing of the Jordan. And then we'll look at some of the lessons from from this passage. Before we start with verse 1, I want to go back to the end of chapter 2. Earlier this summer, we had looked at at Joshua chapter 2 in the story of the spies. At the end of chapter 2, the spies have returned, and they've given Joshua a good report. After hearing this report, Joshua moves the people from their camp at Shittim, which is about six miles from the Jordan, to the edge of the Jordan River. Now you say six miles isn't a terribly long walk. That's true. But when you're moving a couple million people, that's a long walk, right? There's a lot of stuff to move. It takes a while to get there. From verse 15, we note that the Jordan is in flood. Now the Jordan River, when it's not in flood, is about 3 to 10 feet deep, depending upon where you are, and about 100 feet wide. And in those 3-foot deep sections, you could wade across toward the Jordan. In time of flood, however, it's 10 to 12 feet deep and several hundred feet wide. So in essence, Joshua has moved the people up against a barrier that they cannot cross. A couple of observations here as I was looking at this passage. First, notice the reaction of the people here to the spies' report. Now go back 40 years when the spies came back the first time, what was their reaction? They didn't believe it. They didn't trust in the Lord. They rebelled, hence the long journey through the wilderness. This time, nothing. They accept the the report, and they move on in faith. Remember the crossing at the Red Sea? Moses brings them right up to another impenetrable depth of water, right? What do they say? Why did you bring us here? We're going to die. We'd rather go back and eat the onions in Egypt. Why have you left us in this difficult position? The Egyptian horde is behind us. Death comes in a matter of minutes, right? What do these people do? Do you see any grumbling in chapter 3? None. This is the generation that succeeded the generation that grumbled and they moved on in faith. 
in verse 6, we can see that Joshua gives, gives the priests their instructions and the people their instructions to get ready to cross. He tells them to consecrate themselves, to make their hearts and their minds ready. And he gives the priests their instructions, and they, the people are to follow the ark, as they did in the wilderness. When it set out, they followed it. Remember the, the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. And when Israel would break camp in the wilderness, right, when the cloud began to move or the pillar of fire, they'd break down the tabernacle, pick up the ark, and the ark would lead. And it's, it's going to be the same here. He gives them two, two pieces of advice. He gives them two commands. He says, stay back. Follow, but stay back. 2,000 cubits. Now, for those of you who are not familiar with the cubit and do the math, that's about eight-tenths of a mile. And the reason he gives here is so that you're far enough back you can see the ark so that you can follow it as it goes across the river. There's also obviously another reason why he gives them that instruction, right? God is holy and we are not. And it's not wise to come too close to the Lord in his presence if he has not invited you or if he has not commanded it. And so there's the Stay back that respectful distance and then follow. The word here where it says where God will do wonders, this is the same word used in Exodus when the Lord executes the plagues and divides the Red Sea. So what Joshua is kind of telling everybody here is he's, he's giving them a little preview of what's about to come. God is going to do a wonder. Get ready, there's something really special about to happen here. And so there's a sense of anticipation here that the Lord is going to act with his mighty right arm and do something for these people. Some lessons from these, from these first six verses, though, I wanted to talk about for a minute. God is faithful to keep his promises. If you, if you remember nothing else for the next half hour, just go home to lunch today and remember God is faithful to keep his promises. What he promises he will do. And he fulfills his promises in his time. I often like to put a timeline on God when I pray and have a request and ask him to have, you know, can you have this done by Friday at 3 o'clock? Okay, once in a great while, but not likely. If he's going to answer that prayer, yes, he will do it in his time when it's the right time. It takes 400 years, as Leroy pointed out, or when he described this before, this promise begins to come to fruition, but it, that come it does. As you read the Old Testament, as you all have, there are a multitude of promises in there, which would take us way longer than we got time to go through but I would probably point out the ultimate promise from Genesis 3.15, that the Lord would send a Savior who would crush the head of the serpent. And in God's time, as Ed has taught us, Keros, I believe, in the Greek, in God's time, in the fullness of time, Christ comes. He is faithful. God is also our leader. 
His presence for the Israelites at this time was seen in the pillar of cloud and in the pillar of fire and represented in the ark in his presence in the tabernacle. And they were to follow him as he led through these means. Now we don't have an ark to follow today, but we do have what the ark symbolized and what it contained. What's in the ark? Ten commandments in the book of the law. Okay. There's the fulfillment of all the scriptures, and it's here for us. They had the presence of God with them, with the cloud and with the fire, and we have that presence in the Holy Spirit. He is with us to guide us and to lead us, and so the Lord is still here to lead us, and we are to follow. And he's also left us, as with the Israelites, there were priests, to help the people understand the law and its meaning and how to live. We have pastors like Pete and Ed to teach us the word and what's expected of us and how we should lead and follow the Lord. And the last thing, God is holy. We must concentrate ourselves to properly prepare our hearts before we come into his presence to worship or before approaching him in prayer or in any kind of communication. And while he is our Father, and he welcomes us into his presence and bids us come, we dare not approach him in a flippant or casual manner. For remember, he is God, and we are not. He is almighty, and we are not. And he is the creator and sustainer of all things, and we are not. That distance they were to stay back from the ark was to make that point. God is holy. Now, verses 7 through 13, if you will, are a little bit like a parenthesis. You could read this, you could read this chapter as 1 through 6 and then 14 through 17 as just the narrative of, of crossing um, the Jordan. This, this paragraph probably occurred chronologically earlier than the actual crossing, right? This is, this is a lot of what the Lord said to Joshua before they crossed. So we go back and the, and the author gives us a look at what's being said here. First thing is God will exalt Joshua. He's God's appointed mediator for the people to replace Moses. And we saw that at the end of Deuteronomy when Moses dies, up on the mountain goes Joshua with him to be ordained to be the mediator and leader of Israel. And the Lord says that he will begin to exalt Joshua this day as he did Moses to let the people know that he is the chosen leader and that he does have God's word and his power and it is with him. Throughout redemptive history, God has chosen certain men at key junctures to do this. Obviously, Moses and Joshua are two examples. Samuel and David would be two others, Hezekiah, Josiah, and there are others in Scripture. And the pattern finds its ultimate fulfillment, obviously, in Jesus Christ, the final mediator between God and man, who after his death and resurrection, God exalted, took him to heaven where he sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. 
The other piece of irony here, which I'm, I'm sure since you're all Hebrew scholars and Greek scholars like me, not, that would be Ed. When you look at Jesus and Joshua in Hebrew, what is it? It's Yeshua. They're both the same name. The Lord saves. So it's interesting. Joshua sort of points, if you will, to Christ when he comes much later. And in 8 through 13, Joshua gives the people assurance that God is with them and will lead them. That he will, the wonder they're going to see is the river's going to dry up, just like the Red Sea. And they will be able to walk across on dry land. And that the Lord will, that will be a sign that the Lord is with them and fulfilling his promises and that he will lead them in the successful conquest of Canaan, the promised land. We have those same assurances, we have assurances similar to that, right? The Lord has promised that those who have come to faith in Jesus Christ will persevere and will enter the promised land. So that, that is there. Now, the last thing before I move on to there is 12 men. You're going to ask me, what's that sentence doing in there? It kind of sticks out in the middle of that passage with no idea what happens. Read chapter 4 when you go home this afternoon and you'll see what the 12 men do. But it's kind of a foretaste of what's coming in, in, in chapter 4. And then in verses 14 to 17 is the actual crossing is described just like Joshua described it earlier in the chapter. If you're interested in a little Holy Land geography, the, the city of Adam that's referenced here is about 18 miles north of the fords at Jericho. So the Lord drives the water up for a long distance here, and it stands in a heap, just like at the Red Sea. And that lets them cross. I wonder, well, why would you, why dry it up that far? Why not just, you know, right in front? Well, again, you're moving several hundred thousand people across this river in a day, and you probably need several fords or paths across there to get that, that crowd through there in that time period. And so that might be part of what's going on there. Or it could just be, frankly, a demonstration of God's power. I can dry this thing up any place I want and for as long as I want. The final note on this passage, at the end, they're called a nation. This is the first time that Israel is referred to as a nation. Now, there's a promise of a nation back in Genesis when the Lord makes his promise to Abraham, but it's the first time he calls his descendants a nation. They have now become a nation of priests unto the Lord. At least that's what they're called to become. And this is the first time that's referenced. This whole experience of Israel as they've gone from the Exodus to the Red Sea crossing to the wilderness wanderings to the crossing of the Jordan and then into the Promised Land I would submit is a pretty good example of the Christian life and has often been referenced that in in some commentaries and writings and does point to a sense to what each and every one of us has experienced in our walk. Let's look at that for a minute. God calls us effectually to faith in Christ and delivers us from our bondage to sin. Go back to the beginning of Exodus. God calls Israel out of Egypt and their bondage to slavery. 
Note that in both cases, who does this? The Israelites? Did you? No. This initiative is all from God and accomplished in his power and strength by his grace and mercy. It is not anything to do with us, any merit we have, any... Let's see, if I remember the psalm right, it says when, when they were the least of all nations and the poorest and of no real worth or benefit, God comes and rescues them out of Egypt. There, there's nothing in here of our merit at all. It's all his initiative and execution. When the Israelites come out of Egypt, God provides a mediator, Moses. He provides a leader for them to bring them out of bondage and to lead them to the promised land. Moses is a type, or pointing to, if you will, Christ, who is the final mediator between God and man, who leads us out of bondage to sin, who paid our debt by dying on the cross. The Red Sea is often, if you read Paul's letters, he will reference that as baptism as they were like baptized into the faith, which obviously the parallel here would be our baptism when we come to saving faith. I want to spend a little time talking about the wilderness. This, this would be the parallel to our walk through our Christian life to the process of sanctification, if you will, is how I would see this. This walk through the Christian life for the Israelites was quite an experience. They had times of great blessing and deliverance. They had the presence of the Lord God. They saw his presence on Mount Sinai when he gave them the law. But there were also times of sin, grumbling, and rebellion in the wilderness. And the Lord set up the tabernacle and the sacrificial system so that upon confession and offering of the, of the sacrifice at the temple, they, they could have their sins atoned for. This obviously ultimately points to Jesus Christ. His sacrifice on the cross, then, has made atonement for our sins. And as we walk through the Christian life, we all sin. But if we can repent and confess and come to Christ to seek that forgiveness, he's just and faithful to forgive us our sins. They had times of trial and testing. You will recall they were attacked by the Amalekites for no reason, other than the Amalekites thought this was just a great chance to pick off a bunch of straggling people and get some wealth in a hurry, right? I mean, no provocation, but the attack came. They experienced heat, cold, thirst. They witnessed the death of loved ones. Right? They all experienced a whole generation that passed in the wilderness. They experienced illness, quarreling, the breaking of relationships. All those things were there. And those are the same that most of us will have experienced in one degree or another in our life. For the Lord Jesus Christ said, the world hated him and it will hate us. And that we would have times of testing and trial and difficulties. And when we face those, we're to pray. And we're to talk to the Lord. 
And often our first prayer will be, Lord, take this trial or difficulty from me. That prayer is appropriate, but sometimes it's not his will. If that's the case or when that's the case, it's not to shake our fist at God or to become angry with him. It's to offer the second prayer. Lord, help me through this trial. I can't do this in my strength. You can't do it in yours. Give me the power of the Spirit and your strength to help me endure this burden and to carry me through this, however difficult it may be. Remember what I told you at the beginning. If you remember nothing else, God is faithful. He's promised to do that and he will do that. He never forsook his people in the wilderness. Despite the sin, despite the grumblings, all the other issues that occurred, did the Lord ever leave? No. He stayed there faithfully through the whole journey. And he's going to stay with them through the conquering of Canaan and the crossing of this river. Not only does he leave us his strength and his promise, he also leaves us the ordinary means of grace to help us through these trials and tribulations. In the case of the Israelites, as I mentioned earlier, he left them the word, right? He left them the Ten Commandments and the covenant. We have the scriptures. They had priests to help them understand the word, the law, what they should do, where they should go, how they should live to please the Lord. He gives us pastors and elders to help us to do the same thing. Prayer is present in both. You see it both in Israel at that time and you see it today. And the fellowship of the saints. The people were called to come and worship at the tabernacle and we are called to come to do the same here. To be part of the fellowship of saints, to encourage one another, to bless one another, to strengthen one another as we go through various trials and tribulations and then the sacraments. He is faithful. He will do what he said. And finally, the Jordan has often been referenced relative to death. And beyond that, and beyond death, of course, for the redeemed, lies the promised land. Christ is passed through the Jordan. He's passed through death. He's been resurrected. He's the firstborn from the dead. After that, he has defeated death. It has no power over him, and it has no power over those of us united with him. And he has been exalted to the right hand of God the Father. The, the drying up of the Jordan would symbolize this, our safe passing, if you will, through death into the promised land. He has conquered sin. He led a sinless life. He went to the cross for my sins and for yours. And he has defeated Satan. The three great enemies of our Christian walk and in our life, Satan, sin, and death, Christ is defeated. They no longer have that power. And since we are studying Revelation on Wednesday morning, 
it seemed like the appropriate way to end this message would be one on the promised land. So what awaits us on the other side of the Jordan? What, what has God prepared for us that the promise to Abraham points to? Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. Promise. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. We serve a most merciful and great God. Would you pray with me? Our Father, we know there are difficulties in this life, but we know that you are faithful and that you will not leave or forsake us, and that you will bring us safely through the Jordan into your presence, where we will enjoy you and glorify you forever. Amen.